to the cycle, folks. Good conversation. I think one of the most important conversations we can have coming into 2024 that's not directly related to democracy collapsing and the uh, efforts to stop that at the ballot box is about international affairs. And that's why I'm, I was so excited when I was on the Internet the other day and I saw that Alexander Ward, who is a national security reporter at Politico, great security beat reporter, was putting out a book talking about the transition from the Trump administration to the Biden administration in the national foreign policy realm and um, a re-embrace of something called interventionism, which is, you know, uh, what Trump was trying to end, basically, by, by fraying our relationships with NATO and with our democratic allies in Europe. So um, I was excited to invite him on the pod and he was um, he was willing to come. He's got a, his book coming out. His book's called The Internationalist, The Fight to Restore American Foreign Policy After Trump. That book is available for pre-order now and can be um, purchased, you know, it comes out on February 20th. So just a, a couple of weeks after my own book, which I should shamelessly remind you is coming out on February 6th, where you can get hit them where it hurts. Um, so, um, so Alex, welcome to the pod, dude. Yeah, thanks for having me. And also congrats on your own book. That's a big accomplishment. Yeah, thanks. thanks. Yeah, I'm excited about it. Um, yeah, so this is such an important topic. It was important to me uh, all year. But and, and then I think the importance of it has heightened a lot now that the MAGA movement of the Republican Party really looks like they're ready to gum up funding to Ukraine. It's it's something that I would assume as a national security reporter, you never expected to see the Republican Party, um, you know, wanting to abandon a Democratic ally, a, a people we promised security assistance to as they're fighting our mortal enemies, the Russians. So, you know, all of our money is producing dead Russians. It's generally, we consider that good expense. So, Alex, let's talk about something for the listener. When I throw a word like internationalist, or your name your book, internationalist, we expect people to kind of understand what that means. So let's just give them a basic primer. What is internationalism? I mean, it's effectively having an embrace of the post-1945 world order. And I use 1945 because that's the year that World War II ended. After that, the United States became the very clear power in the world. Uh, we helped create the United Nations, NATO, and generally speaking, the world has run that way since then. They call it the liberal international order. And what it effectively allows is for the free flow of capital, for democratic countries to sort of work more together. It's supposed to minimize war. It's supposed to be more about alliances. Um, and it does require a more active United States in the world, uh, protecting sea lanes, or again, working with democratic allies to stop uh, invasions, that kind of thing. And there's you know, ebbs and flows throughout. And I should also note that this system, as a lot of people refer to, did not come out of the goodness of America's heart. It, it, right. was, it, right. it was for self-interest, right? If the world is more peaceful, if trade can flow more freely, then it all works for the United States um, at the end of the day. It helps maintain its power. So in a way, you, you hear this as Pax Americana, and you also hear this as um, you know, a system that benefits the United States, but also others. It was a, a, a way for the U.S. to stay on top without making others that angry at it. Um, so that has been a traditional foreign policy and a bipartisan foreign policy vision, usually really since then. Um, there have been some factions that are against it. Trump was, you know, the, the greatest sort of avatar against it. Uh, and so when you look, as you sort of mentioned, the election in 2024, there is going to be 
a very clear foreign policy difference between you know Biden who who sees the world this way and Trump who who wants to end effectively or at least wants to radically uh, revise that world order. Right. And and what Trump represents, of course, is the, is the opposite of, of interventionalism, which is isolationism. And it's the posture the U.S. had coming out into World War One and then out of World War One even more profoundly, I think, than before World War One. And I had to abandon the day that the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor and forced our hand to reengage militarily first in the world. And as Alex just pointed out, you know, when you want to if you want to understand how it is that you and I and many of the people listening to this pod were born into a world of of certain U.S. hegemonic power, then you have to look no further than the switch from isolationism to interventionalism after World War II, during World War II, and the regimes and the institutions that have evolved out of that. So, um, So Donald Trump's an isolationist. Isolationism is a very uh, nativist, populist position. It gears up in both the political left and the right. As Alex just pointed out, though, it's not typically a Republican foreign policy position, right? In fact, some could argue, and I mean by some, I mean all the Reaganites, that it's the exact opposite of the of the Ronald Reagan Cold War you know, um, you know, tear down this wall, Mr. Gorbachev, right? So explain a little bit about Trump's foreign policy, and then we'll move into how Biden had to come and fix it. So I I, I, I hesitate to disagree a little bit, but I don't I actually don't think no, Trump's... No, please, is, always I, feel free to disagree on, uh, on the Viticon uh, pod. <laughs> I, I actually wouldn't call Trump an isolationist. I mean, he's he because he was willing to threaten war with North Korea. He has talked about striking Mexico, um, the thing he doesn't want to do is necessarily go to war to protect others. He would go to right. war to advance what he thinks are American interests. Um, yeah, yeah. So that I think is sort of different than isolation. I think that's, that's an important caveat. Yeah, because like the 1920s isolationism was about nothing, nowhere for no reason, right? Except for the home front, basically, right? And, and expansion, right? Yeah, and we know so, from Trump's yeah, and we know from Trump's presidency that he's not averse to using military force abroad. I mean, he killed uh, Qasem Soleimani, uh, you know, the the Iranian uh, Quds Force uh, leader, and, uh, and and others. So, you know, it's not that he's unwilling to use American power abroad. It's the the reason with for which you use it. And yeah, for him, starting and I think democracy sort of or saving democracy in Ukraine not good enough of a reason, right? Right. In his mind, all foreign policy action should be taken almost solely if they benefit an American uh, American interest, whereas Biden is not necessarily, you know, doing things that are out of the American interest. But in his mind, there is a broad American interest in protecting a democracy abroad, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and he's not wrong, right? Because as you pointed out, we do these things that we um, give disproportionately to NATO because it serves us, <laughs> not because... We're altruistic, great people that want to take care of the world, although we that's the, the rhetoric around it, right? At the end of the day, it served American interests to become a hegemonic superpower. And when you control international organizations or at least have a controlling share, right, then you you get to do that, right? So, so all right, so Trump, not technically an isolationist, but very, very, you at least agree with me, I had hoped unorthodox in terms of Republican foreign policy in some areas, especially in this Ukraine situation. So Biden comes in 
he's got to go to Europe. Now, we, I think all of us in resistance Twitter followed uh, Trump's global affairs pretty pretty closely when he met the king and queen and uh, or when um, or when he you know would go to a World Economic Forum and and awkwardly interact with his Democratic allies and then go have special private dinners with Vladimir Putin. We all noticed that that was weird. So let's talk a little bit about Biden coming in you know, 2021 on the, on the, on the, you know, the tales of an, of a attempted insurrection by the opposition party. And he's got to go and make our national, our NATO feel better. Right. So what does he do? Yeah. So, I mean, to actually to, to take a quick step back to understand where Biden was coming from, you, well, you have to know that when he was three years old, when World War II ended. Um, yeah. so, he, he was, so he has this feeling of the liberal national order in his bones. But you yes. also have to understand a guy named Jake Sullivan. He's the national security advisor. And this is a guy who was working for Hillary Clinton uh, and worked in the Obama administration at high level positions. And he was there beside Hillary Clinton when she lost Trump. And he took that extremely personally, as did a bunch of others. And what he one of the lessons he learned from that was Trump did not win because of his foreign policy vision, but it contributed to his victory because there were a lot of people in the United States who felt this defense of the liberal international order did not benefit them, that there should be a president who's not doing so much abroad, should be doing stuff at home. So for we don't have to go all into it, but Jake and others come up with this concept of a foreign policy for the middle class. Now that fits very neatly with Biden's ideology, right? This is a guy who does believe in the grandioseness of defend the world, but he also has in his bones as well, this sense of like Scranton Joe, right? Middle-class guy. Right. So how do you marry the two? And so this worked really well. So Jake's concept of foreign policy for the middle-class was, it's not that America abandons its roles abroad. It's just, it has to be far more cognizant that what it does must have a component where Americans are truly benefiting. And if it's not overly clear, explain it ad nauseum. So this somewhat explains why a Biden foreign policy feels a bit almost like progressive Trumpism in some spots. Um, for example, like keeping tariffs on China. They're doing that to continue to make sure that they don't necessarily dump a bunch of products or hurt uh, manufacturing or middle-class America. It's why um, you have basically the United States constantly saying, hey, NATO and European countries, you should step up more and help Ukraine. Not that we're going to abandon Ukraine, but we're going to do whatever we can to get you to contribute more. It's also why uh, the U.S. left Afghanistan. That war was not was not uh, serving the interest that Biden thought it would. It was not serving for, uh, middle class interests. So uh, the United States withdrew its military, of course, chaotically. But that if you talk to the Biden administration today, um, they will say, yes, it was a disaster in the way that we withdrew, but in the grand strategic picture, be beneficial because of all the other things that the U.S. could focus on. So all this to say is that that's the kind of you know big thing foreign policy they're trying to enact and have been trying to enact until today. And the sort of through line has been, you know, focus on the big stuff, leave the small stuff aside, with, of course, the caveat being, um, I think, Israel... Hamas. In May 2021, there was a war that was nowhere near as big as the one we're seeing now. But for the Biden administration then, that was a side issue. Now this one has become more central. Why? Because you have Hamas basically saying they're going to wipe a country off the face of the earth, um, which is nowhere near the same necessarily as like Russia, Ukraine. Right. Um, but, but the concept of you defend Israel because there is an enemy that is trying to wipe a country off the face of the earth and you can't defend the liberal international order if you allow that to happen. 
So right. that's that's a that's sort of the, the Cliff Notes version of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so as Blinken and Sullivan are bringing in this new national security paradigm, this foreign policy for the middle class, which I think is just fantastic diagnosis of what they've done, right? Um, you know, so as they're bringing this in, I mean, you could you could say they get hit with, but also they there's an opportunity that comes along, and that opportunity is that Vladimir Putin starts to assemble a pretty massive force on the border of Ukraine. And, and the White House is the first mover. They're the first to see it. They're the first to call the alarm. And they call it aggressively in the face of great international skepticism. So talk a little bit about how uh, policy for the middle class ends up with this really kind of like, I don't know, I would call it a perfect test lab, right? Rat, test, test rat for arguing why the U.S. has a role in the world with its allies and promoting peace in, in Europe. So talk a little bit about how it allows them to, to put this policy into really clear practice. Well, I think they would say two things, right? And this goes not, not only just for Russia, Ukraine, but just in general. There are two reasons why defending a democracy should matter to anyone in the United States, regardless of where you live or your, your employment status or your class or whatever it may be. One is when autocratic nations are on the march and start trying to take countries off the map, that causes economic chaos, that causes political chaos to the point that it will affect you in your daily life. Um, that could lead to having uh, allied countries have unstable governments that could lead to uh, or unstable political realities that could lead to more expensive prices at the ballot box less we uh, excuse me, more expensive prices at the grocery store <laughs> um le uh, lest we forget right there was as part of this russia ukraine fight grain was not getting out of ukraine and right. that was increasing food prices. oh yeah so that would be sort of part one is that it, these wars will affect you and the other is just the general notion of there is like a material cost to which I guess is the grain example. There's a material cost to these wars, but also uh, more importantly, when you allow, and this is their theory, I'm, I'm parroting that when you allow a country to overtake another, then it's going to be, it's like the give the mouse a cookie problem, right? right. They're going to want another and another and another and if Russia were to stumble into NATO territory or try to take a NATO nation or whatever it may be, then the problem is then you send U.S. troops into a fight. So yeah. maybe the best way to not get them into the fight is to defend the the victim country in the first place. And uh, yeah. so that is sort of their theory of the case is you middle class America or not even middle class America, but a lot of America, if you don't want your sons and daughters to fight a future war, you know, stop Russia here. Now, you don't necessarily have to buy that argument, but that's the argument that they make and why they think that defending Ukraine is in the benefit of, again, sort of big think middle class. Though I would argue that anybody as steeped into World War II history as the two of us probably would tell you you do, right? Because, of course, it was appeasement and uh, refusal to defend the first territorial claims that Hitler made in in, in you know, 1940s Europe that caused us to end up with a much bigger, almost insurmountable, almost unsurvivable military problem later on. So, you know, I think with the Biden team, when they argue, we've got to stop this now, because as you said, if we if you let a, a, a dictator overrun the country next to them, there's li less incentive for them not to go to the next. And because of our NATO obligations, just for folks to understand, NATO's uh, article... 11 
five. <laughs> NATO's Article Five. If if Putin was to engage in military activity, go over the border, even some kind of guerrilla assault, <laughs> right? We could be drawn into a very very destructive European conflict. So all right, so so Ukraine's happening, and things are are good, right? Because usually the anti-war component, and we're seeing this now with Israel and Hamas. And, and there's more dynamics to that. But usually the left is not crazy about military involvement, right? And yet with Ukraine, they get it, probably because their own democracy, they're looking at massive pressures on their own democracy, the probability or the possibility of losing American democracy, that it, it brings it home what it'd be like to live under authoritarianism. But in any case, you know, generally speaking, you see an initial rally around and then not long after we see something that we've never seen before which is the republican party split on whether we should be interventionist and protect our nato i mean massive billions maybe trillions of dollars into uh nato and and uh european defense stuff right so talk a little bit about what happens within the republican party why can't they be counted on to fund ukraine going forward I, I can't say I can do a very good political analysis, but what I do think is happening is what we sort of talked about before, which is, you know, Trump views foreign policy as what immediately helps what he, his vision of American interest. His vision of American interest is like money comes into America, almost that, <laughs> you know, Im right. immigrants, you know, out that kind of thing. But there needs to be almost a financial component to foreign policy. And for him, you know, sending money to, to NATO, to European countries for their defense or South Korea, say, or Japan or having troops stationed in on, on those continents, there's no benefit there. What, what how does that benefit? Why would America be sp spending money in those places uh, be better than, say, for building a wall or or for other you know programs or infrastructure in the United States, whatever it may be? That idea has permeated throughout the Republican Party uh, because it is Trump's party at this point. Uh, the, there are still, you know, to your point, like, like Reaganite foreign policy books, which have a lot in common, frankly, with sort of a Biden style foreign policy. It's why you're seeing, uh, you know, a lot of in this Republican primary, a lot of attacks from Trump and Vivek Ramaswamy and to a certain extent, Ron DeSantis on Nikki Haley, not only because of her, of her you know, surge in second place, but because she is by far the most traditional of the foreign yes. policy people in that party. Uh, and you have Ramaswamy, who's told me at, at Politico that he wants the U.S. out of NATO. You have Trump, who's been very open uh, about you know his skepticism about staying in the alliance. This is a very different concept of what's in the American interest. If you you know if you basically talk to Trump or Biden, uh, you know Trump would say you're not in NATO because why are we giving them billions of dollars? That's a misconception of how it works, but still that's how he sees it. And right. Biden would say, you give it to them because ultimately it's cheaper to do that than risk war. Right, right. I mean, it's cheaper to do that and have the battle be with other people's kids, right? I mean, that's what the argument is, right? So, all right, let's talk and then, all right. So, you, you know, you you have your book and I wrote a book just now. So I know what it's like. You write a book and then shit changes and you're like, oh, damn, dude, I wish I could have completed that in the book, right? Um, gosh, I'm, I mean, like, like Louis LaPierre has a like a part of a chapter in my book, his good guy with a gun strategy. I, I lay out how they developed it, what a total shit show it's been, but mostly, you know, um, the, you know, about Lane LaPierre, who will be described as the NRA 
um, chair or president, but now he's gone. So you can't update a book. If you could update a book, though, right? Let's talk about Hamas and Israel. So this second foreign policy crisis, which you can never predict, and they just get dumped on your lap, comes. And it is and it is probably the worst foreign policy crisis that could have happened to Biden, right? It's the only one with potential to divide his own coalition in the way that it has. Because for 20 years, you know, I would say the far left has been pretty militantly pro-Palestinian have been, you know, um, that, you know, if you don't have a, a big frame of history, of history, history, then you might not understand how long and how complex and how tit for tat and give and take and back and forth the complexity of the, 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 you know, issues between Israel and Palestine have been since the moment Israel was created as a state, right? So um, young people in the Democratic coalition are, are, are tend to, to lean that way, but we see that is a huge difference even amongst Democrats by age, that it's generally the younger people. So so here's here's a guy, he's you know, he's trying to do his interventionist thing. It has been popular on the left until recently, and it's fractured the coalition. Talk about what 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 your research into the into their secure national security thinking. It, what do you see coming out of how they're managing this crisis of that? So it's it's it stems a lot from the fact that Biden has always been a staunchly you know pro-Israel guy. Um, you know, he he mentions the Golda Meir story every chance he can get. Um, I'm sure listeners here have heard at least some version of it of how when he was a young senator he met you know Golda Meir who was leading Israel at the time and she told him you know we have we the Jews have no place to go and so uh, and his father uh, you know Joe Biden's father was very pro-Israel as well so this is like from childhood something he has felt he's gone to the country many times I've traveled with Biden to Israel and I've seen it how he like you know he calls himself a Zionist it's it's what he feels so there's a part of this where like while I try to I wrote a book about sort of this whole ideological machinery and personnel around Biden in a way this is kind of him. Like this is this is pretty yeah. much all him. This is how he feels about Israel. He will defend Israel uh, to its last, you know, moments. If it, he will do whatever it takes. Um, and that said, I think because they are way more in this administration cognizant of you know not only just the politics but you know changing views in the Democratic Party and also um, you know how they see the world. They are far more forward-leaning than I think any other administration on the human rights aspect. Not that they've done too much about it, but they talk much more about it. And there have been some pushes of Israel to that end, but nowhere near enough uh, for the critics of the administration, right, who would like to see a ceasefire at most, or at least more humanitarian aid enter Gaza uh, at best, or at least. So um, I think, you know, that this is... like. Part of what makes foreign policy so interesting to cover, and, and I'm sort of a, a one issue person in this, is that, you know, whenever you see like a presidential debate, they always talk about health care and, and immigration and whatever. And that, those are all important issues, but they all require Congress. There's a whole political reality around those issues. Foreign policy is really what the president wants to do almost entirely. There are statutes around it and there should be advice, advice from Congress, et cetera. But like kind of at the end of the day, what the National Security Council does well, who the, the advisors of the president, they run foreign policy. So it's always interesting to get a sense of who the person behind the resolute desk really is. And Biden is as pro-Israel as it gets, which is why you're seeing the policy you're seeing. Yeah, you're so right. I mean, you know, like um, the, 
Yeah. <laughs> You're so right about that. It is Biden. It is, um, you know, I think a commitment to the concept of a state for Israel. And I think that's probably what divides the coalition, right, is a recognition of of what it takes to have a democratic you know, little teeny slip of land tucked into all that authoritarian chaos, right? And what it, you can't just stick that there and, and hope it for the best. So, you know, I think he's committed to that. Um, I do think it's been a challenge, right? I mean, how do you, so what would you say, like you see happening in Israel and Hamas going forward as we move into the politics are going to become more heated as we go through the election cycle? Um, you know, I think, you know, how do you, how do you see this issue resonating in 2024? Yeah, I mean, I think it really depends one on uh, sort of what happens with Pal. I mean, for for Democrats who are leaving by you know leaving the Biden coalition to a certain extent um, over this. I mean, I think it depends on what happens with the humanitarian situation. I mean, Israel, as at the point that we're talking, is is moving to a more targeted phase of their operation. They say right, basically, Hamas has been dismantled on on the great stage. They won't be able to launch attacks really from. Um, Gaza anymore, and the leadership, many leaders have been killed, and they're being uh, pushed out and, and hunted. So that should end sort of a large bombing campaign and the widespread suffering just on a daily basis. But that does not stop the fact that, you know, 85 something percent of Gaza's uh, Palestinians in Gaza are displaced. That's about 2.3 million people. So many right. are hungry. So many are, uh, lack food, water, and medical care. So how quickly then, when the bonds stop falling so much, when the large-scale operation ends, can the U.S. convince Israel and others to just surge aid in and help alleviate um, what's going on there? I think that could be one of the things that could shift. But, or, and or, uh, after all this is over, the U.S. puts its thumb on the scale and goes, okay, Bibi Netanyahu, it's time. Right, it's time yeah. for you to go. Right. Which uh, I expect, right? Like I've always kind of expected that. And, you know, this is just a shit talking now, but like, you mm -hmm. know, it's not necessarily based on it. And certainly for me, not based on any expertise or inside knowledge, but I've always assumed the that Blinken, Sullivan, Biden understand what a power, powerful bargaining chip it will be for stage two, like what comes next in Gaza to have removing BB. Right. If that's done now, you lose that leverage with Hamas, with Palestine, with the other Arab countries. And I think that is a, an important bargaining chip or piece of, you know, of, of uh, you know, uh, political capital, if you will, <laughs> that they can use to transition to that second stage that, you know, what comes next stage. And I think everyone's going to be deeply critical of and, and Biden set up even as the sole organ, because. Um, you know, Alex is talking about the power you have as presidency in the foreign affairs realm. It's very different than domestic politics. And in the nerd literature, we call that the sole organ doctrine. It's the one area where you have a lot of autonomy as the president. And, uh, and, and so speaking of that, let's close off with this. OK, what, what do you think the Trump administration would say? Let's just say that it would be a normal administration and not necessarily a dictatorship. Still very Trumpian, but not full dictatorship, right? What would you say the Trump foreign policy in Palestine, Gaza would be? I mean, look, if you are a critic of Biden's foreign policy, uh, Biden's policy towards Israel, you're not going to like Trump's policy towards Israel. Uh, he, during his presidency, showed that he would do whatever sort of the Israeli position uh, wanted. 
Uh, Netanyahu, if you're still in power, may still be in the sort of far right coalition of that country, which would then, you know, do a lot more to harm Palestinians. Um, that would just be the case. I mean, Trump was had a very pro-Israel, anti-Palestinian policy. Uh, I doubt he'd be talking as much about the human rights needs, about the aid needs, about the need to transition to different types of, uh, you know, less targeted operations. Um, so it, it, I like I get the, you know, the people who are angry at Biden over mm -hmm. this whole thing. I totally get it. Um, but at the end of the day, if you really don't like what's happening, it could and almost likely would get worse. Uh, for Palestinians in the Trump administration. So if you are a, a voter who cares about these two issues, or, or sorry, who cares about the Palestinian issue, and you're looking at very likely these two candidates, um, I'm not telling you who to vote for. I'm just saying that like, right. very clearly, you will have, you probably have a very bad choice, right? Uh, if that's the issue you're going to vote on. Uh, one yeah. person who's either disappointed you, or you don't like how he's handling this war, another person who could find ways to make it worse. I'm, now, that's to say, Trump could, you know, having been president for four years, might have learned a lot more in these last four, might have talked to more people, might have decided that, hey, maybe there's a way to make a deal that makes things better for Palestinians. I don't want to discount that fact um, or that possibility. I'm just saying that during his four years, he showed he gave us no evidence that he would somehow be uh, more uh uh, amenable to the Palestinian cause than he was during his his presidency, and I and I think it's probably pretty clear that you know of all the pressure, and I think there's a lot of people that would like to see Bibi Netanyahu gone, right, for the, the anti-democracy efforts, the corruption stuff, the court stuff, and then of course like the heavy hand, right, in the response. But that one of the the one of these people is not is not Donald J. Trump. He would probably be very supportive of BB and and would refuse to put pressure on him to resign in my humble opinion now Alexander Ward national security reporter of Politico his book the internationalist the fight to restore American foreign policy after Trump on sale right now for pre-order on February 20th it's going to drop you should have a copy of that in your hand when it does so you can understand the complexities of foreign policy it is soul organ for a reason folks and that reason is it's hard <laughs> thanks for coming on alex yeah thanks for having me lovely conversation yeah thanks